The Power of One is brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, available only on Amazon Prime Video. A couple of years ago, a complaint began popping up on some online gun forums. It was about the CZ-550, a rifle produced by a Czech manufacturer and bearing a Kansas stamp. The gun was from a line of dangerous game rifles called the Safari Classic, and hunting enthusiasts were dismayed it had been discontinued. That gun, it's the Safari Classic, was probably the most prolific hunting gun there was. And the arms manufacturer stopped making that weapon because it had developed such a notorious reputation. That's Kathy Lynn Austin, a woman who can perhaps best be described as a forensic arms investigator. She says the problem was that gun's connection to an African poaching crisis that has pushed the rhinoceros to the brink of extinction. She'd know. Five years or so ago, when conservation groups in Africa started finding bullets and gun packaging at the scene of poaching crimes, she was the expert they called in for help. Wildlife advocates have been sounding the alarm about the rhino for several years now. The numbers of rhinos poached in South Africa has grown by nearly 500% in just five years. With most That's these- Prince Harry at Kruger National Park in South Africa where 80% of the world's remaining rhinos live. The poachers are after the rhino's horn, which is prized in Asia for its supposed medicinal properties. At $60,000 a pound, it fetches a higher price than gold or cocaine. Austin got to work on those hunting rifles. Within three years, there was a major U.S. government investigation into the poaching trade. In part, it began looking at whether CZ or its U.S. subsidiary violated any American laws in selling weapons to buyers in nearby Mozambique. The company has since stopped those sales. And then there was that gun. I will say, this is the first time in 30 years of going after illicit arms networks that I've actually stopped the production of a specific gun. And not only stopped the production of a specific gun, but one of the most beloved guns. I was able to stop its production because I was able to illustrate how it was specifically trafficked in order to target, you know, 90% of Kruger's rhinos. Rhinos are a relatively recent preoccupation for Kathy Lynn Austin. For most of her life, she's been focused on a different sort of dangerous game. She's a mostly one-woman operation who has targeted, investigated, and helped to bring down some of the most dangerous arms dealers in the world. She exposed the weapons deals that fueled the Rwandan genocide and shut down smuggling networks that helped power years of civil war in the Congo. Most famously, her name is entwined with Victor Boots, the so-called Merchant of Death, who's made billions of dollars selling weapons and furthering conflicts all over the world. In 2012, after an FBI sting operation, he was tried and convicted in the U.S. The DEA finally got their man. They flew him to New York where he pled not guilty to charges including conspiracy... When Boots' lawyers appealed, claiming a U.S. government conspiracy to get their client, part of the evidence they cited was Kathy Austin's investigative work on Boot. You are listening to The Power of One, a podcast devoted to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people who changed their world and ours. 
I'm your host, Sarmishta Subramanian. This week, we bring you the almost unbelievable story of Kathy Lynn Austin. Her fearless battle against the global arms trade has taken her into the front lines of war. She survived plane crashes and crossfire and stolen into war zones, following the trail of illegal guns. There is no other human being I've ever encountered or heard about like Kathy Lynn Austin. She is the world's greatest arms trafficking investigator. I've seen her living out dramatic detective stories and all on behalf of uh, peace and social justice and protecting our environment. So she's really a hero and uh, really a hero of one. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. In the summer of 1987, just three years after President Ronald Reagan's rousing re-election campaign, Kathy Lynn Austin was working at a Washington, D.C. nonprofit called the National Security Archive when a political scandal shook the American government. As you all know by now, my name is Oliver North, Lieutenant Colonel, United States Marine Corps. I was a lowly intern, and they put me on something called the Iran-Contra Affair. Well, the Iran-Contra Affair was about illegal arms shipments that different U.S. entities were backing and were involved in, Oliver North being one of them. And so I was at the archives looking at all these declassified documents and seeing exactly how illegal arms operations were taking place. I was learning the mechanics of it, the logistics of it, who was doing it, and it was a fascinating world for me because a lot of the illegal arms dealing I could very clearly see was leading to these gross human rights abuses. Austin had studied African history in university and been involved in the campus anti-apartheid movement. Now, she says, via Oliver North, she'd found her calling. I wanted to go off to Africa and basically discover the Iran-Contra affair of Africa. I wanted to look at illegal weapons from the U.S. or from private sources in the U.S. that were going to Africa and that were causing a lot of damage. Not long after that moment, she was off to Angola. Austin's career began 30 years ago then, in a place she has never exactly returned to, an office desk. But its foundations were laid long before that. Millions of people watched the Iran-Contra affair unfold. Most of them didn't wind up forging a path as freelance weapons investigators in the world's most wrenching war zones. But Kathy Lynn Austin felt a more personal connection to what she was seeing. It really begins way, way, way back with my ancestors. Um, when, on my mother's side, my maternal side, the first ancestor that arrived in the New World in Virginia, a hunter, actually set up a gun-making, manufacturing iron forge in Virginia. So that forge um, became very famous for having supplied almost all of, lots of the guns that were behind the American colonists fighting the Brits in the Revolutionary War. So I kind of grew up with this early understanding of guns and kind of the role that they might play in warfare. But I was 
bred by my grandmother as the black sheep of the family, so to speak, to actually look at the negative side of what guns, sort of the, the role that guns play, and about the relevancy of fighting for social justice and against some of the sort of patriarchal and gun um, fanaticism that was part of my upbringing that actually led me to always kind of have this idea that guns were somehow behind a lot of the conflicts and that that was something that I wanted to pursue, a sort of righting of the wrongs of my family past. She started on a World Bank mission in Angola, then worked for the UN there, verifying the withdrawal of Cuban troops. Cuba had long had a military presence in Angola, and a tangle of Soviet, South African, American, and Cuban interests had fed the country's civil war. I managed to be one of the five independent observers, the only Westerner on that mission, and that is where I first really learned how war ticks, how war actually is executed. I was um, taken under the wing of the head of the mission, a general, and we went from battlefield to battlefield, and that was really, for me, my sort of first experience with war. That led to a post in South Africa in 1994 the year of its first democratic elections, which brought Nelson Mandela to power. I cherish the ideal of a new South Africa, where all South Africans are equal, where all South Africans... And I was working behind the scenes with anti-apartheid forces. And as a result, I was really very fortunate to be able to watch Nelson Mandela vote. And I also was invited to his inauguration. But while I was there during the inauguration, that is when we started to hear journalists and researchers like myself began to hear that there was this mass violence going on in Rwanda. And I just remember like a lot of my journalist friends saying, well, their editors were coming back to them and they're saying, no, we just had a great, you know, happy story about Africa with the election of Nelson Mandela. Rwanda is one of the smallest countries in Africa. It's even a French-speaking country. So who cares? Austin did. She returned to the U.S. and raised enough private funds to go to Rwanda in 1994. There she saw the aftermath of a full-blown genocide perpetrated by Hutus against the Tutsi minority. In three months, more than 800,000 Tutsis were brutally murdered by their neighbors and fellow citizens. The devastation was everywhere. But Austin's clear eye was fixed on one facet of the tragedy, the weapons. It took a robust global arms trade to make a genocide possible. The Hutus were armed to the teeth, by design. As Austin would later testify before the U.S. Congress, the Rwandan government was in 1992 one of the largest arms importers in sub-Saharan Africa. The source of those arms? Often Western states, who were especially lax about tracking sales of light arms and small weapons. Austin had come upon a nascent trade in a pivotal moment. It was the end of the Cold War, and at the end of the Cold War, you had all of these people who had carried out covert operations on behalf of one government or another without jobs. And they were on the ground left with all the assets like airplanes, and you know they knew who the customs officials were on the ground to bribe, and they knew where the sources of weapons were. 
By the mid-90s, there were humanitarian groups in Rwanda giving vital aid to victims, gathering testimony from witnesses. Austin pursued a revolutionary new angle. She began talking to the other side, the perpetrators. You know, I had planted myself down in the border area of Zaire, just across the border from Rwanda, where all the genocidaires had basically fled. Um, and that's where they were regrouping and they were rearming. And I made it my mission to document the weapons that were going to the genocidaires, those who were committing these mass atrocities in violation of UN arms embargo. So I kind of made that my mission, and I stayed on the ground, and I documented weapon shipment after weapon shipment. I was just sort of as a lone person on the ground in my sort of, I guess, everyday skirts and <laughs> um, bare legs. And, um, you know, I would go to the bars and hang out with all of these nefarious characters. And as, as a result, I got very chummy with them. Um, and in that sense, I would hear the details of where, you know, they were bringing in weapons or how they were bringing in weapons. And, you know, I'd go home at night and write down all of my notes. Even now, pushing 60, Austin has a kind of youthful, all-American way about her. In pictures, she has the glow of someone who spent a lot of time outside. She's a quick smile, and she's easy to talk to. She also is kind of an amazing psychologist in the sense that she just knows how to talk to people to bring things back to a, a less dangerous stage where they don't see her as a threat. That's Greg Hittleman. Austin's former colleague at the Conflict Awareness Project, the nonprofit she founded. He's now a director with the human rights group The Enough Project, as well as with The Sentry, an anti corruption nonprofit founded by an activist, John Prendergast, and an actor, George Clooney. And she triggers things like their ego, their self confidence, their, their sense of impunity, and in many cases, their, their gripes against their competitors. And a lot of times these arms traffickers are in fierce competition for business with each other, and they love to see each other go down. And so she, she exploits all of those different vulnerabilities and, and, and psychologies in her so-called targets. At one point, she found herself face-to-face -face with a man now known as the architect of the genocide, Colonel Teoneste Bagasora a man eventually convicted and sentenced by an international tribunal for genocide and crimes against humanity. That encounter still lives very much with me. It's very much sort of deep embedded in my soul. You know, here was an individual who, you know, he had gold necklaces around his neck. And I mean, the 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 sort of aftershave lotion, I still remember that was, you know, very sort of... Um, a little bit uh, too much. And it was his confession to me that as soon as he would acquire more weapons, he was going to make sure that his troops that he had kept in hiding in Zaire at the time, that's the D DRC now today, they would go back and they would continue the slaughter and kill as many Tutsis as possible. After nine months in the field, Austin published a report on her findings. Her discoveries became part of the evidence against Bagasora. But this wasn't just about prosecuting one case. Austin was getting a high-level lesson in the trafficking operations that war criminals rely on. 
In Rwanda, she learned about the key players, their networks, the way they moved weapons, where the money came from. It was a critical moment in her career for another reason. It's also where and when I discovered uh, Victor Boot, who would grow to become one of the most prolific arms traffickers of my generation. Victor Boot could be described as a kind of zelig of the arms trade. Outfitted with a fleet of ex-Soviet military planes, he sold weapons to the governments of Rwanda, Togo, Libya, and Liberia, to rebels in the Congo, and to both sides of the conflict in Angola. He worked with the Taliban in Afghanistan. He's been linked to the blood diamonds trade that fueled war in Sierra Leone and to illegal exports from the Congo of copper, cobalt, diamonds, gold, and coltan. Boot rejects the criminal label. He views himself as a businessman. And he's not entirely wrong. He's also worked for NATO, the U.S. government, the French government, the U.N.'s World Food Program, and many other entities delivering troops or aid or food or weapons or flowers around the globe. Austin first learned of his shadowy networks when she was in Rwanda. She followed his movements for the next 15 years. You know, I pursued Victor Boot from war zone to war zone, and I collected forensic evidence on his activities, and I took that to authorities year after year after year and never was able to get traction on him. And that was, again, because governments including the U.S., were not eager to go after arms dealers that they feel they may not, they either are using in a contemporary way or they may need them in the future. And then in November 2004, Austin found herself in an airfield in eastern Congo, leading a snap inspection of 32 planes suspected to be moving illicit arms for boot. Stretching a U.N. mandate to verify an arms embargo, she took a small group of inspectors out to check the paperwork for each plane and examine its cargo. We woke up at dawn, you know, and basically we're, we were out there. I think the mission was supposed to activate at 6, um, 6 a.m. And so I was expecting those peacekeepers on the ground there. And uh, they weren't there. I went, though, however, to the civil aviation authorities that were on the airfield that were Congolese and told them I was going to run this SNAP inspection and that they should get behind us and be on the right side of history. The troops came eventually. And by evening, Austin had valuable forensic evidence tying several front companies to boot. There were others pursuing Victor Boot by then, including the CIA and Interpol. The U.N. Security Council soon ordered a freeze on Boot's assets and companies. The U.S. did the same. But that didn't mean he wasn't working. Victor Boot had been hired by the U.S. Pentagon, the Department of Defense. His company had been hired for approximately 144 flights into Iraq during the Iraq War. And we knew that whereas he may have been seemingly working for the U.S. as an asset, um, delivering goods into Iraq on their behalf. He was also, as he often did, you know, was using the cover of that to arm the other side. Now, it's when I went public with those details that showed that in violation, not only of U.N. sanctions, but in violation of U.S. sanctions, the U.S. Pentagon was contracting Victor Boot. And As a result, with that egg on the face, I think that is kind of what gave a green light 
in a sense, for law enforcement to go after him. I was still somewhat unhappy in the way that U.S. law enforcement went after him. They went after him with the sting operation where I felt all the accumulated evidence, they could have convicted him on actual arms deals that had already taken place. Hey, I'm Kyle Fulton. I'm the producer of Power of One, and I wanted to tell you a bit about the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. He's not your typical hero, but the political fate of the nation rests in his hands. John Krasinski returns as the titular CIA officer in Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. The latest season takes the former analyst to South America to solve a global conspiracy that spans the UK, Russia, Venezuela, and back home in the US. Follow along the action-packed mission in the new season, now available on Prime Video. Still, in March of 2008, Victor Boot was arrested. Three years later, Austin sat face-to-face with him in a federal courtroom in New York. There wasn't enough space to contain all the people who had come to watch the trial, and so Austin was assigned one of the few seats available. And I remember going in and sitting in jury box number one and looking at Victor Boot for the first time and thinking, of all the evidence I'd collected against him, of all the victims I knew, of friends and colleagues, translators, drivers, who I had lost along the way that helped me expose his activities. I just remember looking at him then and just thinking, you know, in my mind, he was already convicted. But I was absolutely numb and in shock that here was this person who had committed so much evil and had led to so much death. And he was just this ordinary human being in a, now in a very sort of you know, humiliating and humble situation. Boot was sent to a U.S. federal prison. But Austin's work did not slow down. Boot's lieutenants and contacts were still in the field, working. And anyway... Austin's interest has always been in the systems that enable great humanitarian crimes. That has led her to some pretty respectable places. Because Boot is not unique in viewing business with a kind of moral agnosticism. Rebel militias and war criminals can be lucrative clients for people besides arms dealers. Most of the gun networks that I track, you know, rely on offshore structures. So, you know, I've been tracking the sort of accounting firms and the financial service providers and the insurance companies and the facilitators to 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 places like Mauritius or Jersey Channel Island, you know, or BVI in the Caribbean. All of those enablers are very key to how these illicit arms trafficking networks operate. But they also depend on lawyers. So one of the things that is to our advantage, is very early on, sort of in the late 90s, and, you know, we began to understand the role of these enablers. Another place Austin often ends up? Defense industry trade shows. There's a very close relationship between the legitimate and the illegitimate arms trade. And when weapons are produced for the legitimate arms trade, they very often wind up in the illegitimate and criminal shadow world of arms trafficking. That's Greg Hittleman again. Uh, it wasn't uncommon that Kathy would go to a trade show and 
at some little coffee house associated with the trade show where different professionals are wheeling and dealing. She would sit down with a couple of characters who were actually major arms traffickers. And we've had literally cameras in flower pots filming those conversations. You know, we would send her over on an investigation. She'd be hopping from one place to another. And the next thing I know, I'd be getting a call from her or some kind of encrypted message uh, saying, hey, I found the guys. We're meeting in a bar tonight. And she would basically sit in the bars of luxury hotels and drink and chat with the brokers and arms dealers themselves, like the worst of the worst, like the most dangerous people in the world, um, the, the real organized crime brokers and players, and convince them to spill the beans. It's hard to shake the sense of Austin's sheer vulnerability. A woman, on her own, unarmed, walking into these meetings in some far-flung corner of the world. Every minute of every day that I worked with her, I worried about Kathy. Um, Not worried in the sense that she was going to do anything stupid. She was very savvy, very careful. But the reality is, she literally would call me up or send me a note that would say, I'm meeting with the main guy. He's taking me out somewhere I don't know. I should be back in contact in 12 hours. If I'm not, send out the alert. But the things that make her most vulnerable are also the ones that make her effective. There's a kind of flaw in the international law enforcement system, which is in order for an investigation team to go from one country into another, um, they have to get diplomatic approval. You know, an FBI agent can't just go on a fishing expedition into Sudan. What you need is, uh, you know, a whole series of diplomatic and bureaucratic activities to make those things possible. With Kathy, though, she's just an individual. What does she need? A passport. She doesn't belong to a government. She, as an independent investigator, literally just went wherever she wanted. As for the liability of her gender, this is how Austin herself describes it. I think the boldness and the brashness of me being on the scene and the fact that I was a woman and that they didn't think that I was threatening was one of the ways that I managed to sort of beguile them in a sense and get into their presence in their company. I still believe that the main reason I was able to obtain as much incriminating information and evidence as I did was because I was a woman and because they did not see me as a threat to their ongoing military operations. And I think they basically saw me as not non-threatening, as disarming. That's a good word for Kathy Lynn Austin, in every sense. She spent her adult life working to disarm the world, literally, too. Austin's work takes an unusual blend of expertise and skills. She's part policy wonk. She's been a visiting fellow at Stanford University, published reports, and consulted with groups like Human Rights Watch. She's part investigator, tracing shipping records and gun serial numbers to holding companies and tiny freight firms. She's part advocate, 
commenting on BBC and the New York Times, and producing award-winning documentaries. She's battled the supremacy of the gun, to the benefit of people, as well as, more recently, wildlife. Well, I think the rhino case is, is definitely one of the jewels in her crown uh, in terms of a highlight investigation. She worked for a long time on it. We had done some work previously, uh, investigations around uh, the poaching of elephants. Poaching was, was the cause of uh, the massive loss of life of a, of a species that was creating a trajectory for the extinction of wild elephants in Africa within a decade. And that trajectory is still a, a very terrible one. And everyone loves elephants. They're these beautiful, sweet animals. And, and you just, you know, you can't help but as a kid fall in love with the elephants. But rhinos, rhinos are different. You know, people, rhinos are, you know, these grumpy, frumpy, kind of animals, and no one was really paying that much attention to what was happening to the rhinos. The rhinos were headed towards extinction. We've seen extinctions of rhinos. And Kathy went all in. Her goal was to save a species. Perhaps not surprisingly, Hollywood was intrigued. Hittleman says at one point there was interest in a film about Austin's life with Angelina Jolie to play Austin. Austin scoffs at this kind of dramatization of what she does. She told Congress once that we need to demythologize arms deals, to not fixate on their mysterious or scary or dangerous aspects. The operations she's perhaps proudest of are the ones that get no coverage, because she foiled an arms network and nothing happened. And yet you can't blame Hollywood. Her stories can sometimes sound like a scene from a James Bond film, if Bond cared less about looking suave and had a deeper moral conscience. Austin tells a harrowing story of making an arms run in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the first time she talked her way into being present at an actual delivery. We went to a tiny out-of-the-way place called Kalemi to pick up this so-called weapon shipment, and we were going to deliver it to Kinshasa. And we boarded the plane. There was a loadmaster who was responsible for the cargo. And up at front, there was a pilot, an engineer, and a co-pilot where we were all sitting, and we took off. And within very quickly, the loadmaster that had been back in the hold came up into the cockpit and closed the door behind him. And there were 30 African freeloaders who were hitching a ride with us. And when he came into that cockpit, it was very clear that we had picked up chlorine gas that was meant to be poured into the water system in Kinshasa for poisoning um, rather than illegal weapons. And that gas um, had been in poorly lidded containers and it basically, um, the gas was released. And we were in this gigantic Britannia plane, and it ha- we had to ha- basically have a crash landing. So there, there were only three working oxygen masks in the front, in the cockpit, that five of us had to share as we crash landed this airplane. And um, the pilot kind of picked me up 
once we crash landed, we had all survived in the cockpit and we sort of rushed off to the beach while we left the airplane behind as it might have exploded. And it was just waking up, you know, I kind of blacked out from from the lack of oxygen and from the crash and from the whole scare of it. And we realized that everyone in the back of that plane had had died and we were stranded in this out of the way place. On top of spending time with the pilots, you know, we had just survived this horrific event, you know, and we're on the beach and they began to open up to me in a way that I'd never had pilots open up to me before about all their kind of exploits and delivering weapons everywhere else was not only having survived one of the worst, you know, scares of my life, but also at the same time coming with this incredible gift of sources and information that had we not survived something that was, you know, life and death, I probably would never have had access. Austin wrote it all up, and the information furthered her investigations. This was plane crash as evidence-gathering exercise. But also a strange kind of fellowship. She's had encounters like these for years, She's formed alliances and deep bonds with the people she's worked with along the way and gathered fellow travelers to her cause. And she's found a kind of familiarity and comfort in the vagaries of that life. Yes, there's a level of fear. There's a level of risk. I don't know. I have, like, it's, I guess it's become my world. And, you know, I feel... You know, sometimes I feel very feral in, you know, the normal conventional world, right? Because I've spent so much of my life um, in the field, um, so much far away from home. You know, I've never gotten married and don't have kids. And, you know, this is not only my work, but it's my passion. It's my commitment. I am kind of lost in it, but I do feel like I know it. You know, I know how it functions I don't take, you know, risks that I feel like I would live to regret. I I try to work within, you know, certain boundaries and ethical boundaries. And I always feel like, I guess, the good is on my side. Kathy Austin's life has taken her very far from her roots in a close-knit family in the American South. And yet, not so far. There is a kind of through line in her story, and it connects her career of 30 years with the very different career she had before that. Here's her old colleague, Hittleman, again. Kathy was a member of a family band, traveling band. She played guitar. And from, I think, eight years old to like 18 years old, Kathy played guitar in a band that played at the Grand Old Opry that opened for Dolly Parton. She met Dolly Parton as a little girl. And that band traveled all over the South, when she was a kid. And I think that that may have been one of the keys to forming who she is today. Because what she saw was injustice and racial discrimination and crimes against people who are just trying to live their daily lives, poor people, good people, all across the South. And that sense of Injustice, seeing injustice, 
I think just went right into her bones. And I think it informs everything that she does today. She has a fire to defend people who have been put in a situation of being unable to defend themselves. She has wanted to empower those who have been disempowered. Not many people could do what Kathy Lynn Austin does. Most of us aren't propelled to by a particular personal history or an accident of fate or an odd confluence of temperament and circumstance. The biggest difference, though, may be that most of us let ourselves look away. And Austin cannot. Most of the guns and most of the actors that are delivering those guns, you know, are living amongst us and come from our shores and use our banking systems and use our lawyers. And we're basically, by virtue of the fact that they're among us and, you know, uh, using our banking systems and carrying out, you know, operations from our shores, that, that makes us all complicit in what's going on. Thanks for listening to The Power of One. Be sure to listen next week when we bring you the story of the woman who reclaimed Mexico City for its residents and is reshaping the megalopolis all over the globe. Most of the newer cities and the megacities are being born in Latin America, in the African continent, in Asia, and they will have problems that are much more akin to our realities than others. And as I mentioned, like, you know, the first world is unfortunately catching up. The Power of One is brought to you by McLean's in partnership with the Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and co-produced by me, Sarmishta Subramanian. Our producer is Kyle Fulton. Our researcher is Patricia Treble. Michael Friscalanti was a Chase producer on this episode. Stephanie Phillips offered editorial guidance. Special thanks to Charlie Gillis, Jordan Heath-Rawlings, Annalisa Nielsen, Ryan Clark, and Milena Boscovic. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other listeners find us. See you next week. Download a new weekly episode of The Power of One, brought to you by the latest season of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, only on Prime Video.